Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Small Town Fam. It's Yardley. How are you guys? I'm so happy that you're here. Uh, So today's episode comes from our own Paul Holes. It's a case he almost never talks about because it's one that haunts him. He calls it his white whale, a metaphor for his obsession to get justice for the victims. In this episode, you'll hear the frustration and regret in Paul's voice as he walks us through the investigation of four brutal murders that Paul is convinced were committed by the same offender. And even as he has zeroed in on two different, very strong suspects in the past, the case remains unsolved. Of course, if you're a true crime fanatic, then you know that despite his being retired from law enforcement, Paul will not rest until the person responsible for these vicious crimes is held accountable and the families of the victims finally get some answers. Which makes me think of something detectives Dan and Dave often say, and that is, if, God forbid, you're ever the victim of a crime where detectives need to get involved to solve it, you're at the mercy of whoever is assigned to your case file. So let's hope that person would be as dogged in their pursuit of justice as Paul is. Here is Unfinished Business. Hi there, I'm Yardley. I'm Dan. I'm Dave. And I'm Paul. And this is Small Town Dicks. Dave and I are identical twins and retired detectives from Small Town, USA. And I'm a veteran cold case investigator who helped catch the Golden State Killer using a revolutionary DNA tool. Between the three of us, we've investigated thousands of crimes, from petty theft to sexual assault, child abuse to murder. Each case we cover is told by the detective who investigated it, offering a rare, personal account of how they solved the crime. Names, places, and certain details have been changed to protect the privacy of victims and their families. And although we're aware that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we ask you to please join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank Thank you. you. small town fam how are you guys guess what i have the usual suspects i have detective dad hello hello team team you i have detective dave happy to be here happy to have you and we have the one and only paul holes hey hey (laughs) hey (laughs) so good uh so small town fam you know how much I love it. When we get a case from the A-team today, it comes from P.H. Paul Holes. This is going to be a little different, kind of calling it a story within a story. But this is what I consider my white whale. So I'm going to be talking about this series of homicides that are currently unsolved. 
And though I've gotten a lot of notoriety on the Golden State Killer case, to me, this is the biggest failure that I have. Oh, Paul. So starting in November of 1998, uh, I got involved initially as a crime scene investigator and uh, in the lab with a series of women that were killed out in the east end of my county. Uh, initially, the first woman that was killed, really a girl, uh, was 15-year-old Lisa. Uh, Lisa had gone to a Quisonera rehearsal, had gotten into a little bit of a, let's say, an argument over a boy, um, possibly with that boy, and then decided to walk home at night along a very, very scary stretch of road. How far was that from the party to home? Uh, that would have been roughly five miles. Oh, my God. This is going from one city to another city. And this road along this stretch uh, included the Pittsburgh Antioch Highway. And Pittsburgh Antioch Highway joins up with West 10th in Pittsburgh, California. And West 10th Street joins up with Willow Pass Road out in what's called Bay Point. And this is a stretch of road in which uh, there was a lot of sex work occurring during the, the 90s, late 90s. And of course, that brought in a lot of bad guys. And uh, Lisa went missing, and then her body was found a week later. And so I ended up responding out to that crime scene, and I was really just an assistant and uh, helped work the crime scene. But then I went to the autopsy, and I spent a lot of time with Lisa in the morgue. And of course, you know, that's, that's a case that is near and dear to my heart. But what we did not expect is that in rapid succession, other women would end up being killed kind of along the same stretch of roadway between these towns. So now we have Jessica, who had become addicted at a very young age as a high schooler, and then uh, ended up resorting to uh, being on the street. She was found dumped in this industrial area. Jessica had just been brutally mutilated. In fact, so much so, the pathologist initially thought that she had been run over by a car. How old was Jessica? Jessica was in her early 20s. And then after that, there was a, um, another woman, Rachel, she actually was last seen in a restaurant in the Antioch area, but then her body was found also dumped in an industrial area of, of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, California. There was a lot of similarities between what had happened to Lisa and what had happened to Rachel. But Jessica, with the extreme amount of uh, violence exhibited her, looked a little bit different. But now we have three homicides that have occurred within a matter of a month. Oh, my. And then several weeks later, a fourth woman is found, and she's dumped off of right down a block away from a junkyard off of the same stretch of road. She was found discarded in a ditch, and uh, her name was Valerie. And Valerie had been mutilated extremely, very, very similar to what was going on with Jessica. So now I'm working this case, and 
went to the autopsy the next day. And what was done to Valerie was absolutely horrific. And without revealing too much graphic detail, she had been carved into over and over again while alive. Her last moments of life, nobody should have ever experienced. And I became attached. You're wearing it right now. I can see it on you. You can see it. This series of homicides is very important to me. And it's like, this fucker needs to be caught. So, investigation into Valerie's case reveals she's a sex worker. She had recently moved back into the area and was staying with a, a boyfriend, Todd, who would act as her bodyguard when she was out on the corner. And Valerie is early 30s. So, she goes out to uh, this location on the corner where she would typically go to solicit. And Todd would hide back in the bushes and just watch the vehicles pull up. And then Valerie would get in. They would drive a few blocks away. There would be the sexual interactions and exchange of money. And then she would come back and wait for another John to come. So Todd's in the bushes. And this time he sees this boxy brown older import car pull up. And this is nighttime. This is dark out, right? And he sees the man in the driver's side. When he's interviewed, he says, this man is huge. If things were to go sideways, I'm not sure I would be able to handle this guy. But Valerie gets into the front passenger seat of this brown boxy import car and drives off. And Todd goes, she didn't come back. So this is likely the killer. Valerie is found the next day in the ditch. So within a six-week period of time, we have four females that have been killed. And I had involvement with all four on a very personal level because I'm responding out to some of the crime scenes. I'm going to the morgue. I'm working the evidence in the lab. And I really started investing more and more of my time looking into these cases and doing much more than what I typically would because I'm assigned as a criminalist. I'm doing the crime scene. I'm doing the forensics. But I'm like, no, no. We have a serial killer. We have an active serial killer. And we have women being victimized. And initially, it was trying to systematically evaluate the physical evidence in the case on a forensic level and creating charts that replicated what I had seen in the East Area Rapist series that uh, a criminalist had done. His name was John Murdoch. He was the chief of the lab when uh, I was hired, but he was part of the East Area Rapist Task Force. He had done this amazing job to try to show the physical evidence across all of these cases back in the 1970s. Well, I was doing the same thing that I saw him do, but I was now using computers to kind of spreadsheet this out. And as I was looking at things, I am now trying to develop suspects. And 
at this point, with these active type cases, there were assigned homicide investigators, both at Pittsburgh as well as with the sheriff's office. And so my role, I wasn't going out trying to interview suspects. I wasn't going out reaching out to witnesses. I was saying, hey, look at this guy. And so I developed multiple suspects. And sometimes you get on a guy and they go, I'm not sure, but maybe it's him, maybe it's not. I don't have the evidence. And then somebody else pops up. And now you're juggling multiple people that you think could be. Well, which one is it? And over time, some of these suspects get eliminated and some of them kind of bubble to the surface. And this is just like with the Golden State Killer. You kind of focus in on what I would call the prime suspects. Part of looking into this case it's like, well, what types of individuals are comfortable enough to go into a stroll area and find prey? This is a sexual sadist. This is the worst type of offender. So I was confident that the killer is somebody who is shopping along stroll areas in the Bay Area. There's a chance he's been contacted. Maybe he's been arrested. Maybe he's been FI'd. What's that? So a field interrogation or FI report is that there isn't sufficient reason for law enforcement to, let's say, arrest somebody, but they've made a contact. And back in the day, it was three by five cards. There's so much information you can capture on a three by five card, typically name, date of birth, what clothing they're wearing, what kind of vehicle they're in, brief description on what they look like, driver's license number. And also the time and location of where you contacted them is immensely important because now Paul can go back and look at FI cards and say, oh, this guy was in the area on the night this woman died. So I have the crime analyst run me a report. Uh, I want to know who's been FI'd between these dates in this area for soliciting. And so I get that report. I'm going through and I'm trying to identify, you know, all these contacts and who they are. But one of the things I did is I went to my sex registrant detective's office and said, hey, I need to look through your files. I'm looking for sex registrants that are large men. And I compiled a list of about 20. And either they were very, very tall and big or had, you know, larger physical characteristics. And most of these guys, you know, they had your uh, maybe a rape charge listed, uh, possibly forced oral cop, you know, typical types of crimes that your sex registrants have. But one guy, and I'm going to call him Gary, his file is lacking details of his crimes, but on the face sheet in his file, it, it's just listed as 261-187. So 261 in California is the statute for rape, and 187, of course, is, is for murder, homicide. Gary is six foot four and his weight has fluctuated from, you know, below 200 to, to over 230, but he fits the bill in terms of size. And so I'm asking the detective, Hey, you know, what, what's up with this guy? And the detective goes, he never talks about his crimes. I can't get him to say anything. I know nothing, you know, but Gary was consistent in registering, never had any issues with him. So he's been convicted of crimes, but he's out on parole and he still has to visit regularly. Is that what you're saying? 
Gary is a registered sex offender for life. So every year he has to come in on his birthday and update the detective with the sheriff's office. Say, hey, this is this is where I'm working. You know, this is my new contact information. These are the cars I'm driving. You know, give all of that. Why isn't he still in prison if there's rape and murder? Well, this is where we're going to go here. Because now I'm just kind of curious. It's like, okay, so here is a sex registrant that, in essence, has a 187 charge, and I know nothing about it. So I run his criminal history when I get back to the office. And I see multiple arrests in late 60s in Southern California. And those arrests include rape. And I see a conviction and a sentence of three to life. Three years? Yeah. I want to get more information about what these crimes were. So I contact the records departments of these Southern California agencies and I get the reports. So Gary, in May of 1969, he follows a woman and her child out of a department store. And as soon as she gets to her car with her child, Gary is up there with a knife and is pushing the knife on the woman saying, get in. She gets her and her child into their own vehicle, and he makes the victim drive to a location where he sexually assaults her, and he's threatening, harming the child in order to get the woman to comply with his demands. And then Gary is able to get away from the victims and goes quiet until a couple weeks later. And this time, he approaches a woman who's in her car, And she's with her brother, who's only five, but Gary thinks it's her child. So in this situation, he utilizes threats against the kid in order to get the woman to comply and makes her drive him back to his place, where he ends up sexually assaulting her in his place. But he's arrested. These are serious crimes. Oh my God, yes. And Gary gets convicted. He serves three years, and he gets paroled. Kidnapping and rape, three years. Yes. And as I go on, this is where everybody will be appalled at what the justice system was doing back in the 1960s, 1970s era. So Gary gets paroled. He moves up into the Bay Area. From where? He was convicted down in Southern California, but moves up into the Bay Area. And his criminal history showed he had a homicide case in 1975 out on the peninsula in the Bay Area. So I reach out to that agency's records and I get that report. And in that report, this 19-year-old woman, Sarah, gets off work middle of the day, middle afternoon, and walks out the parking lot towards her vehicle. Two young boys are just happened to be out there when they see a man matching Gary's description, walk up behind her. And as she gets close to her car, this man grabs her by the head and then starts beating her and then drags her to this very distinctive orange over black Porsche vehicle. What does that mean, orange over black? So orange color over black. It's a vehicle that stood out in terms of its color scheme. This vehicle takes off at a high rate of speed in the parking lot with Sarah inside of it, almost gets into an accident. Sarah's body is found a week later. Gary is arrested. And of course, his vehicle was this very distinct orange over black Porsche. 
So Gary is arrested and convicted. Gary's a risk taker, too. He took one victim back to his house. Yes. Gary uses his own vehicle. In the middle of the day, also. Yeah. You talk about compulsion is where I look at this guy's like, I have to do this right now. Absolutely. And this is where it's also evaluating who the offender is, as well as what's the characteristics of the suspect. But before I get there, now Gary is convicted of this abduction homicide of a 19-year-old girl, seven years to life. Oh, my God. Here we have a predator. You know, just based on the circumstances of his Southern California rapes, he is a serial predator. Gary was released back out into society, and now a 19-year-old girl lost her life because of it. So he gets seven to life. Guess how long he serves? Seven. Yes. I mean, you just think of the family of Sarah, the horror of that. Yeah. It's important knowing the details of the cases. You know, all I saw in the sex registrant detectives files was 261-187. But I'm working a case in which four women killed, and these are fantasy-motivated, sexually-motivated homicides. So as I'm digging into him, I'm looking at his sex registrant files, this 290 file, and this is all paper. I'm seeing this address in Martinez. My office was in Martinez, but I didn't know where this particular address was located at. So, you know, back in the day, this was before Google Maps. Sure, you had to have the Thomas Guide with you. The Thomas Guide. Those of us who drove in California, <laughs> it's as thick as a phone book for anybody who doesn't know. So I'm looking for the street and then I'm looking, okay, which quadrant on which map is this street? And then as I'm drilling down, I'm going, holy shit, he's five minutes away from where I'm sitting right now. Is it terrifying or exhilarating or both? Oh, it's not terrifying to me. Oh. <laughs> that makes my life easier. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so I've got a serial predator, a known killer who lived five minutes away from where my office was at. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. I wanna talk about pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are, what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you wanna have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. 
That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. It's gonna be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code SMALLTOWN for 15% off your first purchase at LumiDeodorant.com. That's code SMALLTOWN at L-U-M-E Deodorant.com. Do it. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. 
Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So Gary is paroled after seven years and was living in my jurisdiction since 1983. And this case comes to you around the late 90s? Yes. Well, the actual homicides are occurring in the late 90s into 2000. 16 years, he's not back in prison. Yeah. There's several other rapes in my jurisdiction that matched his M.O. that he actually was a suspect for in the early 80s after he was paroled, but they could never pin those cases on him. But then he literally just dropped off the face of the earth as far as law enforcement's awareness of who he was. Plus, in California, we have what's called Megan's Law. And then if you're a registered sex offender, you are on this website. So then the public is alerted to, hey, you have these registered sex offenders living in your area. And anybody basically can know, oh, I live near this registered sex offender. Gary wasn't on the website. His neighbors had no idea what his past was. Was he supposed to be on the website? He absolutely was. And that last thing with that 19-year-old Sarah's homicide case, Gary is convicted of kidnapping and homicide, but he wasn't charged with any sex acts. Though this is no question, a sexually motivated crime. When you're looking at these cases, you have to pay attention to the details about who this guy is. So as I'm digging into Gary, I find out the vehicles that he had registered to him at the time of the homicides. And he had a Mazda sedan, which technically was Renaissance red was the color. But when you look at Renaissance red, it's brown. And what did Todd say the killer was driving? Brown boxy import. Yes. Now I've got something. And likely Valerie was in that vehicle and possibly may have even bled inside that vehicle. So where is that vehicle? So now I'm, I'm digging down on it. And lo and behold, it had turned up at a junkyard, had been destroyed, had been crushed into a metal cube and gone. How long since Gary had owned the brown boxy Mazda to the time it became a cube? So Gary owned that brown boxy Mazda vehicle uh, for quite a few years. The interesting thing was DMV had no sales transaction, but Gary was not the one that turned it into the junkyard. It was two people who to this day, I don't know the relationship between Gary and these two other individuals that ultimately destroyed the vehicle. Did Gary just sell it saying, hey, get rid of it? You know, did they get rid of it innocently, you know, just because it was an older vehicle and it was time? I don't know. All I do know is that Gary had a vehicle matching the description that Todd said Valerie had gotten into, and that's likely the killer's vehicle. I end up seeing in Gary's registrant files, he was in the Navy. 
and had been discharged, dishonorably discharged. So I was like, I'm interested in that. So now I'm reaching out through NCIS. Hey, I need to get his file. It always takes forever to get military records, but I, I finally get his Navy files. And it turns out that Gary specialized in electronics and nuclear propulsion systems. You start getting a sense. He's not a dummy. Yeah, and he's on a submarine. He's on a submarine. Gary went AWOL and eventually was disciplined and dishonorably discharged. But when his crewmates were interviewed, they're saying, yeah, he has a briefcase. And inside that briefcase was a bunch of women's underwear that he would masturbate to while on the sub. Oh, my God. So what is he doing in the ports of call? Minimally, he's doing fetish burglaries. He is grabbing women's underwear. Now, is he picking up sex workers? Potentially. As I dig into him, turns out not only was he capable of working on nuclear propulsion systems for submarines, he's also a member of Mensa. Wow. To be a member of Mensa, you're generally recognized as being very, very intelligent. It's a genius club. Yeah. Here I have a serial killer who is a member of Mensa. How's that? That's terrifying is what that is. Yes. So do you think that this is an individual that will learn from his mistakes? As I'm assessing Gary, I'm going, okay, next time he offends and he is compulsive, he's going to do something different. So instead of following women out of the mall, I thought it was logical. The next step is I'm going to go to where I can have women voluntarily get into my vehicle. It eliminates a huge complication and witnesses because you're not struggling trying to shove somebody into a car. Oh, she just hopped in the passenger side and they drove away. I didn't give it a second thought. Absolutely. So I thought that was just a logical step for this type of offender. There's no question. Gary is a serial killer that is just out and about living his life. So I go, I got to go meet Gary. And how am I going to do that without you know, really hinking him up about the cases? So there's a new sex registrant detective. And I said, hey, you know, I really need to know more about this guy. And Gary was going to be coming in for his next registration meeting. So I went to that and I was introduced to Gary as the next sex registrant detective coming in, Matt. So Gary just knows me as Matt. And we sat down with Gary and during the course of about an hour, both that detective and I were asking Gary about various aspects of his life as well as his residence. One of the interesting aspects about Gary is where he lived. I can mention he only lived five minutes away from where my office was at. And so I would frequently drive by his house. His house looked like what you would think a serial killer house would look like. It's like Silence of the Lambs and Buffalo Bill type of stuff, right? It's in an unincorporated area, but it was a you know residential area. But all the windows on his house had plywood covering them. He had a chain link gate by the sidewalk that was locked. And now why does he do that? And that was the big question because neighbors, when they were being interviewed, indicated, yeah, every time he comes and goes, he has to get out of his vehicle, undo this chain link fence, you know, gate, open it up, drive his car up into the garage, which he can close the garage, and then go back and close everything up. 
So that was part of the interview. It's like, why do you have this? He says, well, I've got a couple of big German shepherds that are running through. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't, didn't realize that. So I have to check in on that. After that meeting, we part ways. And then I, I go by Gary's house the next day to look for the dogs. All the grass in his yard was like two to three feet tall. There was no trampling of this grass. There was no dog poo. I was even talking to animal services in terms of, hey, do we have any registration for these dogs? And nothing. He lied. Gary lied about the dogs. Yes. He didn't anticipate the gate question. No. And why? Why does he have that gate? Because as a registered sex offender, law enforcement at any time can come up and just say, hey, you know, knock on the door. Hey, just want to, you know, check, see how things are going. But if you lock at the driveway with that padlock, law enforcement can't breach that. They can't? Like legally, you can't? No, you cannot go across that. That's part of his personal property. And so now by locking it, he is preventing law enforcement from coming up and just knocking on his door to check on him. Right. He controls where the interview goes, where it occurs. It could be in his living room, but it could be out in the driveway. Wow. Yeah. So Gary's a clever one, isn't he? He's evolved. So Gary becomes very important to me. And I'm doing a deep dive. And to tell you, I have a binder on Gary that is 517 pages long. Oh, my God. You still have that binder? Oh, yes. I still have that binder. And when I was talking to a DA about Gary and that he wasn't on the public-facing side of Megan's Law, she was like, oh, I'm going to fix that. You know, we're, we're not going to let him be comfortable. So that was taken care of. I did check, and Gary did have his DNA up in CODIS. It was collected in 1999, nothing because of an arrest, but he went in and they recognized, hey, you don't have DNA on file. You're a registered sex offender, California law. You need to have DNA on file. And in 2000, it was put up into CODIS and was searching at the national level and didn't hit. So now I am pretty much stalking Gary. <laughs> Does Gary live alone? Gary lives alone in that, again, that serial killer house. He does temporary jobs throughout the Bay Area, specializes in computers. Again, he's very bright, but he's an underachiever, which again, checks the boxes with, okay, yeah, that's oftentimes with some of these serial predators is that they are bright but they do not have the you know, personal success that they are very capable of. So you know, at one point, because I had some colleagues that were also heavily involved with working this, this Unsolved series, they end up staking out Gary's house in order to do surveillance. Gary never emerges. They give up. There's like, he just doesn't go anywhere. I drove by his house weekly. I'd look in. I wanted to see him. I never saw him outside. Gary changes his vehicle. At one point, he was driving this Chrysler, you know, 300M, and purposely brings the sex registrant detective out to take a look at the size of the trunk. This is so great. My golf clubs fit in here. And the detective was just like, this was odd. I was thinking, he's just showing me it would hold a body. It's right in your face. Why would you do that when you're trying to obscure what you've done? Why would you bait somebody like that? 
hubris. Yeah, that's exactly it. Gary, I believe, was sitting there taunting this detective, and this detective just picked up on, there's something weird here, but I'm not sure what it is. Like he's almost saying, she was right in there, and you're looking at it right now. Yeah. And then eventually, Gary gets rid of the Chrysler and ends up driving a Toyota Prius. So here's this huge man in this tiny little car. It's like the guy from Minions. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Grew. Grew. (laughs) Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A decade goes on, a decade and a half goes on, two weeks before I retire, two weeks before I'm in front of D'Angelo's house, I'm at the county fleet getting gas in my unmarked Ford Taurus, and I get gas, I come out, and I see this Toyota Prius drive right in front of me with Gary driving it. I'm like, okay, I want to see where you're going. So I end up pulling out. And he's at a stoplight at an intersection to get onto the ramp to get onto southbound freeway. So I pull in right behind him and he and I literally lock eyes through the rear view mirror. Oh my God. And I'm in an unmarked vehicle, but I had the light bar and the windshield, you know? And so I don't think Gary recognized necessarily me from so long ago, but he knew law enforcement just pulled in behind him. So I follow him to get onto the freeway. And then this freeway in this area is a four lane wide freeway. Gary immediately in this little Prius goes from merging on all the way to the number one lane, which is the fast lane. So I also do that. I was going 90 miles an hour and he was pulling away from me. Shut up. It was at a point where I have no justification You know, I could have lit him up, but it was like, what am I going to do? You know, it's just like, I had to bail, you know, and then I get back to the office and and my colleague, I just said, I just got into a little mini pursuit with Gary, (laughs) you know, it's like, oh my God. And then of course, my focus at the time was Golden State Killer and D'Angelo. And, and so the message that I'm trying to convey is working these types of cases and looking into potential suspects, you find men that have just the craziest criminal behavior, criminal aspects that you think 
This is somebody that is worth digging into, but it can be so frustrating not to be able to close anything out. And it really is just part of the complexity of these cases, particularly when you don't have confidence that you have that identifying physical evidence. You know, with Gary, I mean, he is a serial predator. I'm confident he has cases since he was paroled after the homicide that he served time on. But I have no evidence that can link him to that. And I can't say that he is responsible for any of these four homicides. Even now you can't say. I, I can't. Otherwise, he would be in custody. Right. It just galls me that this serial predator who took this 19-year-old girl's life has been able to live a life he doesn't deserve. And I can't do anything about it. I understand what you're trying to demonstrate. Paul's just like demonstrating there are types of guys that you're like, absolutely has to be him. And it's not your guy. And you're like, fuck, I just spent that much time on that. I think he's totally good for it, but he's not good for it until he is. Yes. What is Gary's involvement in Valerie's case or the other women's case? I, I just don't know. And he is a suspect, but I believe that there is a, another suspect that's probably better than Gary. Oh, my. And I know that this other suspect, he, about six months before I retired, uh, he was taken into custody as a result of a 1980 homicide of a 14-year-old girl named Suzanne Bombardier. And uh, his name is Mitch Bacon. He is a sexual sadist. He was out and about in the Pittsburgh area when Lisa, Rachel, Jessica, and Valerie had been killed. And uh, there is enough information about him where he's at least in play. But again, I can't say it is him. And this is part of the complexity of working these types of cases. And I still communicate with the agencies, with the investigators who are assigned to that case. And hopefully one of these days we will get these victims' families an answer. And uh, if that guy is still out there, I will say he is still a threat and he needs to be taken off the street. The sense of urgency is palpable and the sense of frustration of not being able to move faster than you can. For me, it's very frustrating because I really tried. And now we're talking 20 years. And I want to point this out. You're that invested in this case and you still didn't make an arrest. Right. And that's the right way to do it because it wouldn't have been a righteous arrest. That is correct. We're not at that point yet, but hopefully at some point in time we will be. This is what I want people to get out of this story because this is not the feel good, oh, we got the right guy. This series of cases, this is my biggest failure. The notoriety that I've gotten because of the success on Golden State Killer, absolutely proud of it. But that is not what I think about. I think about Valerie's case and the other women I tried and I failed, you know, and we don't know if that guy's still out there, if he's continuing to kill. You know, I used to think, how could, you know, when I was getting involved in cold cases, you know, how could these investigators have not figured this out? 
Right. And now you're one of them. And now I'm one of them. <laughs> ah, Paul. When we talk about what's the case that keeps you awake at night, clearly this is one for Paul. This is the one in terms of not a cold case that I worked, but a case that I actively was going out on and then was like, I am going to solve this. And I didn't. We've known Paul since 2018. Yeah. Spent a lot of time, had a couple of cocktails. Couple? <laughs> couple. Couple hundred. <laughs> uh, we've had lots of in-depth talks. When we started the episode, I could tell Paul's upset. He had tears in his eyes. I've never heard that story from you. That's why I know it means so much to you. Because you held on to it. Yeah. Yeah. It is important to me for sure. When I think about what sort of regrets I have in my work life over the last 40 years, nothing compares to the kind of regrets that you all have. I have regrets from my, <laughs> from my time in law enforcement. Dan does. Paul does. We all do. <laughs> we appreciate you feeling comfortable enough to share that with us and the listeners. It's very generous. Thank you. I've said it so many times that this job you all do is just not natural because it's not. And I just have the greatest respect and empathy for how you do what you do. Well, I appreciate that perspective. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and me, Yardley Smith, and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. Our production manager is Logan Heftel. Our senior editor is Soren Bajan, and our editor is Christina Bracamontes. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our social media is run by the one and only Monica Scott. Our music is composed by John Forrest, and our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town Fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country. In search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.